this is At Your Cervix, the podcast. The podcast where pelvic health physiotherapist Emma Brockwell and Gwanya Donnelly talk to incredible guests who help lift the lid and bust the myth on all things pelvic health. At Your Cervix, the podcast, season four, is proud to be sponsored by Pelvic Relief. Founded by Eleanor Gardner, Pelvic Relief strives to offer quality products and information to help manage conditions such as pelvic pain, incontinence and painful sex. Informed by science and quality, they offer best-in-class products for pelvic health. Find out more by visiting www.pelvicrelief.co.uk and access 10% off using discount code ATYOURCERVIX10. Thank you for supporting At Your Cervix, the podcast. Hi, I'm Helen and Emma and Gronje have very kindly let me sneak onto their podcast to tell you about mine. It's called Why Mums Don't Jump and it's grown out of my own experience of pelvic organ prolapse. It's about pelvic floor problems after childbirth, prolapse, incontinence, pelvic pain, all the things that happen to so many women and that no one ever talks about. Join me to hear women's stories and expert voices as we try to bust some of the taboos around lumps and leaks. You can listen wherever you get your podcasts or online at whymumsdontjump.com. Please be aware that during this episode, baby loss is discussed, which for some listeners may be particularly upsetting or triggering. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to At Your Cervix. Today, Gronya and I are joined by Georgina Lucas, or Georgie as I know her, because Georgie is one of my patients, which is obviously more than that. She is a writer, an editor, and also a mother. Georgie is here to tell us and share her story about her beautiful little boy, Grey Atticus Fox, and how she went on to writing her beautiful book, If Not For You, All About Him. I want to give you a little bit of background before I introduce you to her. On the 17th of November 2019, Grey Atticus Fox was born nine weeks early to Georgie and Mike. He weighed just three and a half pounds and was taken to the neonatal intensive care unit and put on a ventilator. Two weeks later, the devastating prognosis meant that Georgie and Mike had to make the horrific decision to withdraw Grey's life support. At the beginning of this year, Georgie's first book, If Not For You, was published. If Not For You is Georgie's incredible, moving memoir of the 21 days she and Mike shared with Grey and the aftermath, the search to make sense of the unimaginable loss. Georgie's here, as I said, to talk to us about her heartbreaking journey, her memoir, her failure to recovery and her life now. So Georgie, thank you so much for joining us. We're really delighted to have you here today. Thank you so much. It's so nice to be here. So I guess where I'd like to start, Georgie, if that's okay, is is where where this story begins, really. Um, you were on holiday in Whitstable with Mike and your firstborn, Finn, um, who was 17 months at the time, and you started to bleed. So uh, you were admitted to hospital and had an emergency C-section. So I wonder if you'd share with us what happened in, in the next 24 hours. Yeah, of course. So, um, yeah, Gray was born on a Sunday evening around 20 to 7 and was taken away from me straight away and taken to the NICU because he was nine weeks old. I then was taken into recovery and wasn't allowed to see him. So Mike was obviously with him in the NICU and I was in this recovery room and I just remember saying, 
can I go now? Can I go now? And obviously still had the spinal and couldn't feel anything in my legs, was then taken into another recovery. And I kept saying, please, can I go and see him? Please, can I go and see him? And they wouldn't let me until I was more mobile, which I think by the time I was allowed to see him was about eight hours after he had been born at four o'clock in the morning. And they brought this rickety old wheelchair and Mike wheeled me around, which was so surreal because... Finn was delivered by a C-section as well. And obviously, as soon as they'd stitched me up and taken me into recovery, he was next to me and then he was on my chest. And Gray was kind of, I could, I was trying to work out where we were going, but we were in this hospital I'd never been in before. And we kind of went round a corner and through double doors and then through another double doors. And obviously the NICU, there's like security, basically. Like you've got to be buzzed through and buzzed through. And it was just so strange. And then Mike wheeled me into... A, um, Gray was in the ICU, which is the highest level of care. Wheeled me into this really quiet room with all these bleeps and sounds. And it's actually really strange. I was thinking about it last night because that particular time is not a time that I think about loads. And, and I think possibly lots of the stuff that came afterwards meant that actually I sometimes forget how traumatic that was. Just finding yourself in a NICU with a baby that was supposed to still be in my tummy and coming across this incubator and this tiny person and he had wires all over the place he had a mask over his eyes he was in just a little nappy and had a phototherapy lamp because he had quite bad jaundice and I just remember looking at him and this huge disconnect between the fact that that was our baby was my baby and he wasn't in my tummy anymore and I remember the nurse who was looking after him said congratulations to me and I had this weird moment of thinking, kind of, what, why? Oh my God, yeah, because we've had a baby. And I don't know, everything was so, felt so strange and backwards and wrong. And um, and there he was. And then I was wheeled back to my room and I kind of couldn't, I couldn't be next to him for very long because I'd obviously just had a C-section and was, you know, all of the delights that come with that. So Mike was with him and then was sending me pictures and messaging. And I was trying to, in those early hours, squeeze the colostrum from my mm. boobs and harvest it into those mini syringes, which was, you know, these like tiny little yellow drops that you're trying to catch. And then someone would take it through and they'd give it, them to him. So that, those first hours were just completely, completely surreal. And I think in contrast to Finn, just, all of those things that I so took for granted the first time that I just my baby would be placed on my chest and then I'd we'd kind of work it out together was taken away and he was being looked after by people that weren't weren't me and what what sort of interaction could you have with Gray at that time so early on we we couldn't take him out of the incubator because um he was too little and too fragile and he needed to I think he was under the phototherapy lamp for a couple of days so they taught us this hand holding thing so you and I remember the, the nurse saying to me you your instinct is to stroke them because they're they're so fragile and little these little premature babies um and she said but actually the doctors stroke their skin when they're looking for lines and things to put into them so they prefer to be held quite firmly and I remember her saying you know hold, hold him like you know what you're doing I just thought I haven't got a clue what I'm doing I've got absolutely no idea um and then we could talk to him and read to him but you're always navigating these funny doors on the incubators so trying to kind of get in anywhere near him was quite 
difficult, but um, Mike would talk him through the BBC Sports scores. I read him <laughs> Harry Potter um, and then kind of sang to him and things. But then again, you're in a, you know, his side of the nursery had four other incubators mm. in and at the time that he was born, it had actually been a really randomly busy weekend. And so it was full. And so then there's nurses and other parents and family coming in and out. So you feel, I felt so self-conscious, which is why we ended up reading to him, I think, because then at least you've got kind of a prop and something that you're doing. But it was really extraordinary. And we didn't hold him until he was six days old. Um, and I remember the nurse, Mike's sister had come to meet him and because our family, we, there was a list in the NICU, only six. We were really lucky because it was pre-pandemic. Okay, but yeah. even then, you were only allowed six people on the list who were allowed to come and meet him to, to minimise kind of risk of infection and not have too many people coming in and out. And between our families, there are eight. Eight. I don't want to get that <laughs> wrong. How many, how many are there in our extras in our family? One, two, three, one, two, five. Yeah, eight. There are eight. Um, and so we had to have two people that could have come and meet him initially. But Mike's sister came. And then I remember after she'd gone, his nurse saying, do you want to hold him? And I and I was thinking, hold who? And she said, hold Grey. Do you want to hold Grey? And it was so, I just wasn't expecting it. And then it was this huge military operation because two nurses have got to be free. And then you've got to, you know, they take him off the take him out of the incubator but then all his ventilator had to be strapped to my arm and he had to be put on me and they warned me before you know it might be that his stats start to drop because sometimes they don't like being moved it's really disruptive to him and he might we might then have to whisk him straight back in again and I was kind of lying there on this chair like I don't want to move could I and they put him there and I just remember then she wrapped a blanket over him and I held him and looked down at this tiny tiny little person and he was mm. so soft his skin was just so soft and then and I thought oh god they're gonna have to take him back in and then she said oh look his like all his his kind of heartbeat regulated and his oxygen levels kind of came up a bit and she was like she said you know that that does sometimes happen that actually just being there against wow. you they kind of relax and you know in the right circumstances it's all fine and so I could hold him for I think an hour that first time which then is so it's so weird it's such a precious time that again when I then think back to Finn and how you know I just held him whenever I wanted and mm. I just grabbed him out of his Moses basket and so the the intensity of that moment was really really amazing oh my goodness that's fascinating and what I'm thinking about is this happened when you were on holidays and you were saying it was an unfamiliar hospital. So was he, was he still in a hospital away from home? So when yeah. all your family were coming to visit, are they traving to come yeah, to visit? Yeah, they're traveling. Wow. So, we, so we live in London. We'd gone to Whitstable for the weekend. And then when I started bleeding, which we subsequently discovered my placenta had erupted, my, I phoned my midwife and she said, you can't come back to London. It's too far. You need to go to the nearest hospital. So we ended up at this hospital in Kent and then, we were trying to transfer back to London, but our London hospital is quite a big surgical unit and there weren't any cots. And so, he, you know, Gray was stable in this other hospital and they were kind of saying, you can't, as soon as there's a bed, we'll get you back, but you can't go back. So my, um, we were so lucky. We got an Airbnb that meant my mum 
could come and she stayed with us um, and looked after Finn, which was amazing because we could have stayed at the hospital. Most hospitals, I think, have a few rooms that parents can stay in, but you can't have other siblings there. So even if we'd stayed in, and also we wanted, we were in many ways really lucky that Finn was 17 months. So he was totally unaware of what was going on, which was amazing because it meant that and and he spent had spent loads of time with my mum so he was really happy to be with Nana and it meant that we could come and go and my mum was amazing and kind of just got loads of food and cooked for us and would kind of say there's your breakfast eat your breakfast now go to the hospital but we were trying to get back to make sure that we were there for Finn as well for his supper and his bath time and but yeah in this totally alien hospitals that we'd never we'd never been in before though it's funny looking back because now it feels so familiar because we spent three weeks there and got to know everyone so well so but there was in those early days definitely I remember thinking I just we've got to get home we've got to get him home we've got to get back to London and then everything we can kind of work out what we're doing with all of this because yeah it felt really we felt really displaced I think but we we, obviously luckily we weren't too far away from London Mm. so our family could drive down my my um younger sister who put me in touch with Emma um is a PT and so her time was relatively flexible so she drove straight out my other sister's barrister her time is not flexible so she (laughs) couldn't get out for a bit but did eventually come and um all of our immediate family met him which was so lucky and I think particularly now and since the pandemic I remember reading in the early days of the pandemic about the restrictions in the NICU and just feeling completely sick for those parents oh it's unimaginable isn't it I mean you describe it really is oh absolutely because you describe in the book how NICU is like going through hell in heaven um and you know I think that's the heaven part is 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 the medical team if if I've attempted that correctly yeah completely and and I can only imagine for for women that have gone through that in in COVID. Oh my goodness, it's 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 a it's a totally different totally. situation, isn't it? But um, what 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 I'd love to hear more about because you speak so incredibly fondly of them in in the book is is you know is the medical team? What was your relationship with like them? What sort of role did they they play throughout that twenty one days? So they were they were absolutely amazing and I think so quickly we became so close to them because Mm. in in the NICU especially I think in in the top unit where Grey was they have one nurse for 12 hours a day and then so the 12 hour day shift and 12 hour night shift one on one so he had a nurse that was looking after him and they were looking after us as well and Mm. quickly they kind of they all had different roles so there was one of his nurses who was really like a mother hen to us and was always saying to me like we made sure that you've eaten enough and like you've got to go home at this time because you've got to make sure you try and get some sleep and then the the same nurse was there on the day that he was born and the day he died and she actually did I think she did a quarter of the shifts in his life so you know they're spending so much time and they really got to know him and they when when I came to write the book I remember sitting down and writing down who was on duty day and night and I actually called up his notes so that I could check things but Mike and I had got it right we remembered every single person because they just the the most phenomenal people and I think I always 
the thing that's so incredible is obviously have this unbelievably sophisticated medical knowledge and they're looking at all these screens and interpreting what it means and calling for bloods and checking x-rays and constantly checking everything but then the amount of compassion and care and kindness as well was just for, I mean yeah they're angels complete angels um and we were so so lucky they did amazing things for us yeah tell us about the um the um octopus story because I didn't I've never heard of this. It's quite fascinating. So they, so um, I remember, I think it was on the second day of Grey's life, this nurse came up to me and said, she has Grey got an octopus. And I was a bit like, oh God, Uh, either like the C-section drugs are still like really playing with my mind, but I don't know. So what's an octopus? And she said, we have these little knitted octopus. I'll go and get you a pack and came back with this octopus, like a crocheted head. And then it's got these little curly legs. And she said, we give them to all of the babies in the NICU because they like to hold on to the legs because they're like the umbilical cord. And apparently in utero, babies hold like to hold on to the umbilical cord. And it was amazing. She was like, put it into his incubator. So I put it into his incubator and this little kid, these really long hands, this little hand just furled around this little leg of the octopus. And it was so amazing. And I actually got that octopus out the other day because we are super lucky and have had another little boy since Grey was so 18 months after Grey was born our littlest bear was born and I remember thinking oh my god bear's so tiny when he was born and then trying to remember how tiny Grey was and I got out the octopus and it and it in the pictures of him it's pretty much the length of Grey and it's the length of my hand from top to bottom I mean it's he was so tiny um but yeah they love their little their little octopus is so such a sweet thing incredible it's those little details isn't it that these incredible yeah and they know about. and they kept this amazing diary for him that they'd everyone who's on duty would write a little note and there was one nurse who was really artistic and she did the amazing like took his little footprints and turned them into butterflies and then like a little sailing ship and we've got all of these oh. we've got this little memory book and it's got things like he had um these little stickers that held his heart probe on that were shaped like a duck and things. And they're all stuck in this amazing little book. And they've all written notes saying, you know, how he was overnight, because that's the other thing. We left him obviously in the evening to go Mm. back to our Airbnb. And that the first time leaving him was just the strangest Mm. thing ever. Again, partly felt like it was all a dream. Like how are we driving away from hospital without a baby in the back? Like, is so strange and then I was getting up in because I was pumping milk to feed him so I was setting an alarm to get up in the night to pump and then phoning the hospital to say kind of it's Gray's mum can I talk to whoever was on duty and you know saying how is he and is he having a good night like just even thinking about it now it's just so completely surreal and they Mm -hmm. were so sensitive and kind with those things and made sure you know got the number and we could call anytime I mean I think from what from other parents I've met and other conversations I've had I think all NICU staff are amazing um ours definitely it felt like went above and beyond mm. whenever they could off after we'd had Grace's diagnosis when we knew that he was going to die they arranged for us to take him outside and got this huge amazing cot and set it up with oxygen tanks and 
all these things and we took him for a little walk outside and it was this really beautiful it was in um it was born in november so it was a december day and it was really sunny and really crisp blue sky but he went outside and felt the, felt the sun on his not quite skin because he had a little like a heat shield over him and was all bundled up and all of these things but that was so amazing to know that he had a few moments outside mm. and we pushed him around in a pram, you know, something that I take so for granted every time I've loaded my other boys into the pram, and, you know, gone to the park and we sat, they brought us hot chocolate to the little hospital <laughs> chapel because it was too cold obviously to stay outside. We just sat with, sat with him. So just throughout, they were always, as well as, dealing with all of the complicated mm. medical stuff just thinking of us and our memories and what we were gonna you know I think that particularly once we knew he was gonna die knowing that we would have that memory forever of taking him outside and doing that for us when obviously they're so busy in the NHS mm. as we all know so overstretched was just phenomenal it really is because you just think they've made each and every day so memorable for you and that, yeah. you know, you depict that so well in, in, in the book and oh they're just just such heroes they they, they, they definitely go above and beyond yeah um, and yeah. they and and we had so many funny times and jokes and you know Mike made friends with one of them who was always telling him that he needed a haircut and then saying <laughs> that he'd bring it he'd bring in his clippers and kind of set up a little barbershop <laughs> and shave his head and, um yeah they became I think particularly because we weren't at home and friends couldn't come and yeah. couldn't come and meet him. They kind of became his friends and family and, you know, our friends and family. And we um, have kept in touch with them. Obviously, oh, nice. the, the pandemic started three months afterwards, which meant we then we haven't been back since the January after Grey died to see them again. But um, we still message them and, you know, keep keep in touch with them a bit. And, what they're doing and I hope that at some point we will be able to get back mm. and see them again. Oh, amazing. Um, you, you touched on this a little bit um, or you, you certainly inferred what, what, how perhaps you fed Grey um, throughout his life but but tell us a little more. How Did you breastfeed? Did you bottle feed? So he had um, he had a tummy, I don't know what the NG. Yeah. yeah an yeah. NG that's exactly it so he had a little tube that went through his nose and straight into his tummy and so I was pumping and I was really lucky um obviously Finn was 17 months old and I had breastfed him I had quite a lot of milk which is so lucky because I think mm. especially when your baby's early you don't always have milk and then obviously when you're not close to them and you can't hold them and all of that oxytocin and I think all the stress and everything as well mm. You know, so often I think mums just end up not being able to produce milk. Obviously, you know, that happens at term as well, doesn't it? There's such an yeah. element of luck in having milk. And I think it's also, you know, exaggerated with preemie babies. But I did have quite a lot of milk. And so I was pumping. And then they'd store it in a little free fridge. And then he had a little test tube at the end of a tube that they'd pour the milk in. And so I'd stand next to his oh. incubator with this little test tube. And and um, mm. the milk would basically go, I guess, by gravity into his tummy. And they'd say, you can hold it a little bit higher and it would go in a bit faster. <laughs> and then we'd also use a little bit of breast milk to clean his, his um, 
to clean his kind of around his mouth and around his ventilator so he did taste it and when I remember the first time I like, got a little fat of milk and put it in his mouth and just felt this cotton bud just go like as it was just like slurped <laughs> straight into his little mouth <laughs> so he tasted it he tasted the milk but yeah not a not a conventional way of way of feeding but his little way but it must be so comforting even for you to know that you were able to do that because like you said for many who maybe I suppose catapulted into the situation that they were never planning to be in and if they then were finding that they were being maybe asked or suggested to try and source some milk and couldn't that's another level of stress yeah, to even exactly, to worry exactly. about and to, to feel like you're feeling nearly totally, so I can totally imagine it's so totally, hard for moms totally because I think it's so hard anyway I remember sitting next to his incubator just thinking I'm completely redundant here I'm not doing anything like if I wasn't here it wouldn't matter if you weren't here reading the you know the charts and the you know checking his oxygen and then ordering bloods and checking you know I, I remember on the first day them saying okay he needs this mineral and this mineral and then he needs to have some caffeine for this and then he needs to have this for this and all these different things that I mean it really did for me I just remember thinking oh my god you know the human body is so phenomenal that Mm. it when this works and you go through a pregnancy and the baby's just what it does while you're just wandering around is completely phenomenal and watching numerous machines and monitors and things that are needed to replicate that yeah there's nothing to put the kind of miracle of it into perspective Mm. quite like that but and I think it's something I've spoken to a lot of NICU mums that feeling of being redundant is such a difficult part of it because then because it then really plays I think with your ideas of like what it means to be a parent to a child Mm. if you're if you're actually feel like you're not really the one that's taking care of it and the nurses and doctors are and and still you know our team were really amazing at getting us involved and like Mike always changed his nappy and all those things but still you're kind of asking every time you want to do something kind of can I do this and then someone's got to show you how to do it because it's got to be done much more carefully much more gently and you've got to make sure that all the wires go back where they started and that everything's still monitoring and you don't not you know remember once changing his nappy and then I hadn't put one of his probes back on properly and some alarms started going off because it couldn't you know and you then and then you think like oh god and I messed up now all I had to do is change his nappy and I didn't do it right so yeah I I felt so lucky to be able to to pump and Mm. and and give him give him some, some milk yeah I mean having a baby anyway you or certainly first baby you think oh my god what what do I do you know there's no yeah. manual for this how am no. I meant to know the answers and then you're no. put into a really scary environment you know can't really be underestimated what trauma that that creates for parents yeah I think it's so so traumatic just yeah. the NICU the NICU experience because you don't I you know I I think I knew one person before Gray was born who'd had a premature baby and hadn't really thought very much about it. Finn was born at term. Me and my siblings were all born at term. It just never crossed my, you know, I just thought, no, I'm not, it's not, that's not going to be something that I want to experience, which I'm sure is how everyone yeah. thinks. You don't, you, you don't expect to end up in a NICU. And, and, and also I think 
at term, do you? Like, I think 60% of NICU babies are term babies. Yeah. So it's not wow. just premature, it's not just premature babies. There's scary things that yeah. happen. It's incredibly overwhelming, isn't it? Yeah. And thankfully, as, you, as we've touched on, you know, you've, you've got the staff there to support you who are used to counselling parents in, in that um, odd alien environment. But it's still it's still yeah. something to get your head around, isn't it? Totally. It really is. A huge shock, a huge shock. And I mm. think, you know, we were so lucky that um, my mum could look after Finn. That meant we could be there. And we both, I'm self-employed, Mike had a really understanding work mm that let him take time off so those were not things that we had to worry about which is so lucky because there's so many people who do yeah it's really really difficult um obviously when Gray was born um you weren't aware of his um prognosis at that point um but they ran a lot of genetic tests um and I think it took a few weeks two weeks for you to um receive the news of 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 his tests um would you would you tell us a little bit more about what you found out after that two weeks of time yeah so he um they sent off some genetic testing quite early but they were really reassuring about that and said kind of you know it's routine he's, he's early there are a couple of markers that send them off and see but it takes quite genetic testing takes quite a long time when you're not when you don't know exactly what you're looking for mm-hmm. they're obviously checking all the genes um and then when he was about 10 days old his doctor said I think it would be worth us doing an MRI scan to check whether there's other stuff going on they had done a scan early on and they thought that something in his brain possibly hadn't developed properly or hadn't developed at all but it was something that was very kind of you know it might be they do didn't really know how bad that could be and it was something that sometimes people don't find out that they have until they're much older and so it wasn't at that point wasn't necessarily something super concerning he had the MRI and then the next day um his doctor took us into the quiet room and I thought that we were going to discuss some genetic tests that have come back clear um and Mike actually said to me yesterday did you really think that's what we were going to discuss and I said yeah did you not and he said no I think someone told me that we were talking about the MRI I genuinely hadn't I was kind of pottering on the corridor like oh this is you know for once we're going to talk about something that's fine and walked into this room and then I'll never forget the look on the consultant's face as she sat in front of me and my brain just went uh uh-uh, we're not this is, we're not talking we're not talking anything that's come back clear um and she explained that she was a um um, she wasn't a, a baby brain MRI specialist in terms of reading it, but she had looked at a lot of adult brain MRIs and she um, just wanted to explain a little bit about what she'd seen. And there were several structures in Gray's brain that had not developed as they should have done in very, very bad ways. Um, and the prognosis from that would mean that he which have been unlikely to see or hear. He was never going to be able to breathe without his ventilator. Um, He wouldn't be able to move. In the kind of days afterwards, we had several more conversations and then discovered that he had a really rare genetic deletion, Um, which again was, it was all very confusing because you're kind of piecing together little bits of information and it was all quite rare. We subsequently had genetic counselling and discovered that the chances of something like that were one in a hundred or two hundred thousand so obviously then looking back like it's unlikely to be something that the doctors have seen before so they were kind of 
working it out with us. Um, but we kind of pieced together this picture that basically if, if he ever came home, he was going to need round the clock care. And I think they mentioned a team of kind of eight specialist nurses and the, there was no long-term outlook. It wasn't, it wasn't something that could be treated that he could recover from and I think the things that they were talking about in terms of his life it just felt to us like it it wasn't a life that you would want someone that you love to have mm -hmm. um in the end Mike and at, the end, at one point Mike and I had a conversation about it and I remember saying if you know if that was a prognosis that I was given following a terrible accident or something. I would want you to switch off my life support because it just, there was no hope of it, mm. the, of there being anything good at any point in his life, really. Um, and so we, together with his doctors, we initially brought up palliative care and going down the route of removing his life support. And I remember asking that question, saying, is that something we should be considering? And I think I had this voice back in my head, they're going to say no, they're going to say no, it's not, you know, it's not good, but it's not that bad. And they said, yes, we do think you're right to consider that. And I think for a doctor to say that, I then knew, okay, we're, this is really, we're, we're dealing with really bad stuff here because, you know, the doctor is not going to not gonna say that unless that's your only option, mm -hmm. really. Such a tough decision to get to, such a tough decision to navigate. And funny, the story resonates with me and I can only remember, I suppose I can only visualize it from a child's perspective but my parents had to make a similar decision for what would be the youngest in our family who would have been nine years younger than me but like everything you're talking about he lived six weeks and it was the decision they had to switch off the machine and it was the same thing now I wasn't present I remember I remember the day what was that his it was name Michael, Michael. but I remember the day we all went up and we had to be in our Sunday best nearly and we had loads of pictures and things, but then the younger half of the family were sent home. But it's just, it's mad. Oh my God, I'm so sorry. I'm oh, so sorry, sorry for you. But it's funny because there's a child's perspective so innocent. Like you talk about your your son was yeah. older. Yeah. Um, but even as a nine-year-old, you're happily going about you know what I mean and we knew yeah. Michael, and then we knew he died and it was sad but short-lived sad if you know what I mean because children yeah. just don't really get the complexity no, of it no. but I am like that must have been so tough to navigate like and that and I think it's so it, it's actually like for me it's so like it sounds weird to say but I it's kind of nice to hear in a way that it didn't impact you long long term because yeah. I think it's it's such a complicated thing because on the one hand, I wish that Finn could have known him more and longer. But then on the other hand, he hasn't had to deal with his loss, really. And obviously you were 
much older than Finn was so I'm sure the impact yeah. was much more and very different but Finn you know Finn talks to me about Grey now but it's so abstract to him like he actually said to Mike yesterday that he was going to write a letter to Grey and say that we miss him and we'd like him to come back and then we can, <laughs> and then we can send it to the hospital <laughs> like hasn't been in the hospital <laughs> just been like oh yeah you've got brother but he's, he's been in the hospital for the last three years and that but then he said so where is he mummy and then uh, I, I don't know I don't know where he is um but this but I think then there's something I don't know whether whether your parents found as well there's something in the innocence of children and the way that is actually really refreshing and really nice because Finn will just say to me mummy Gray is dead he's not coming back and you think, yeah <laughs> yeah well brutal but true but I think too the fact that you talk about him is really good because that would have been the similar thing he you know Michael would have very much been a part of our life growing up and we all yeah. have spoke of him there's photos of them yeah. and, you know it was it was very much a presence but at the same point it was only as you as I got older that you understood more of the context of it. and you're like wow like that was kind of a big like when I even think back like and I'm thinking of you at this stage too toddler at home navigating the situation away from home yeah. and just even everything going on with that like how are you even navigating your postpartum recovery at this stage like you're probably not even on the list like no. you're you know what well, I mean no. No. Well, it's so interesting that because I actually I was reading that book. I've started reading that book, The Body Keeps the Score. Mm. And, and there's a really interesting bit in it when they talk about um, how trauma acts as like a um, painkiller, basically. And they do some amazing research into it. And I think equated trauma with like a certain level of painkiller because I <laughs> had bare last summer and you know, that was my third C-section. So obviously your recovery each time is going to be different. But with Grey, I was in a wheelchair for 24 hours. And then I was like, this wheelchair is rubbish and I can't get anywhere fast enough, so I'm going to have to walk. <laughs> and then I was just walking around and walking in and out and walking up and down stairs and getting in the car and like having just had a C-section and kind of, I don't know, yeah, I just didn't think about it. And I remember after Grey's funeral, which was um, the 18th of December, so literally he would have been a month old so it was a month after my c-section I wore heels and I remember, <laughs> I remember saying to my mum like oh like this is weird like my back hurts a bit because I'm um, uh I think it's because I haven't worn heels for a bit and she was like uh slash do you think it might be because you had a c-section a month ago but somehow I think it's so weird how yeah you anyway I think when it's quite a thing isn't it when you're the person who's given birth to some degree that does become secondary I think especially when you have all the children and things because there's other stuff going on but certainly particularly then it was really a weird thing and I went to see I actually had retained placenta after Grey died which is just another added which I discovered I can never remember whether I discovered on Christmas Eve or New Year's Eve but sometime around then they were like oh it's very rare to have retained placenta with a c-section and I went and had a scan I was yeah you've got retained placenta so I had that taken out on the 8th of January I just remember thinking I mean he died a month ago but I've still got a bit of placenta hanging around um and then I think a couple of weeks after that saw you Emma for because my sister who's a PT said you I think you really need to see a women's health physio to check 
recovery and I and I think I kind of thought like really I, I, I mean like he's dead and like my body's just gonna have to kind of get on with it but she was like no because you've you've still you know mm. been through the pregnancy you've been through the c-section but it's a weird I don't know it's weird to think of doing those things when you don't have a baby with you and going to have those checks when they're not also you know I think my six-week check was also Finn's jabs and you go along and have the jabs and just completely bizarre to have that and to be checking having your body checked for a baby that is dead oh yeah it's like a lot of the questions yeah because I was going to say questions nearly as much as we as health professionals navigate them and are empathetic and sensitive to situations a lot of the questions we are asking are in relation to that pregnancy and delivery and there's no way about that yeah but that's but but Emma was so amazing because I just remember I I had had my six-week check and unfortunately there was a miscommunication the nurse did my six-week check didn't know that Grace died so the first thing she said to me was how old is baby and I had to say uh he's dead he died however many weeks ago and then you know, poor thing. She was obviously then really wrong fitted by that. Didn't quite know what to say. I remember coming to see Emma, and I think every time I came to see you, ended up probably like going so beyond my book oh, time Alfie, because this is so long. <laughs> but it was but, but Emma turned into my therapist as well as <laughs> physiotherapist because. But you just kind of let me talk, and it was probably really annoying. Now looking back, you're probably thinking like, "Shit, we're we getting really behind." But never and annoying. and listened, <laughs> and then asked questions in such a lovely sensitive way and I'm sure that that's not the case you know well I know that's not the case I know that people don't get that compassion far too often they don't get the time and space to talk about those things and you appreciated so much the complexity of how the mental stuff Mm -hmm. went alongside the physical like I mean we've discussed it so much haven't we because my your recovery from gray to bear was entirely different wasn't it I mean I think I think that is something that we're very privileged as as public health physios we have a lot more time with our patients yeah and then obviously GPs or nurses um and And I was so lucky to be able to come and see you and pay to do that privately yeah absolutely I mean Laura was privileged hugely she's she's brilliant she's a brilliant pre and postnatal fitness um professional based in um in london and and you know i wonder if it wasn't for her if you would have ever dealt with the the postpartum recovery the way you dealt with it i think it is definitely very difficult to engage with those it's a conversation actually i've had a lot with um with mums who've lost babies around trying to find postnatal fitness classes because yeah. you know every postnatal fitness class that you go to in person like whether that's a yoga class or pilates class it's bring your baby along yeah you're obviously not going to go to one of those if you don't have a baby so then you turn to online but then online so much of the language surrounding the classes that people record completely understandably is you know this is a great exercise for if you're breastfeeding this is a great exercise for if you're carrying a baby on your hip all the time and I think that's so all that language is so triggering if you're thinking but I don't I'm not breastfeeding because my baby's dead I'm not carrying a baby on my hip and I think that feeds back into this idea that like where am I postnatally because none of this applies 
to me because I don't get to do those things that affect your body but but I still need I still need that recovery I still need that support and I think that is why then often women end up not having the support that they need and I think one of the other things that's really can't be underestimated is the feelings that you have around your body and I know obviously after any pregnancy and delivery it's complicated isn't it and and you don't you don't quite feel like yourself and I think whatever the situation it can be hard to accept that you're not as strong as you were before and things maybe don't look like they did before and all those kind of things but I think I certainly found after grey died I hated my like pouch of tummy that I had and actually looking back at pictures like probably you know he was born at 31 weeks and then all the stress and stuff I was so skinny but I just was convinced that I had this like pouch of tummy and I hated it so much and I because I think I was really angry with I felt that my body had let grey down because my placenta had abrupted and he had been delivered because my waters had broken early and there was so much guilt and blame going around in my head and then layering on top of that the grief and trauma of losing him and this sense that he wasn't here but all of the scars and residue of him of him having been there was still around and why you know why had he died but yet still I had this like big scar across my tummy and still I had this big ab separation and this porch that I hated and like all all these things and I, and I wasn't strong like I had been before and it's just such a complicated such a complicated set of emotions because obviously I should have been more forgiving with myself but I wasn't and I and I look back I remember thinking about it after Grey, after Bear, my youngest was born, and how I I had really bad water retention, which I didn't like, and it was kind of gross. But I was like, you know, had it once it had been checked and it was all fine. I was like, well, it will it will go. But I didn't feel like that after Grey. I felt so I don't know. I think I was quite obsessed with removing any kind of evidence that there had once been a baby in there but it I don't know it's a strange thing and I think also it felt I was also quite terrified of anyone asking me whether I was pregnant because mm -hmm. I was terrified of those conversations and having to then say no except for that I was and yes I think it's so complicated physically and mentally and I, I think I would love it if if everybody who um you know obviously it would be amazing if every woman who's ever given birth had access to seeing a specialist women's mm. health physio um but I think particularly that after you've lost a baby um because you know you yeah I, I think I had to call up and make my six-week check it didn't happen automatically because obviously Ray wasn't here so his jabs weren't booked in automatically and just having to make those you know having to go out and find those things for yourself is such a hard step to to take well it really is and you're grieving and and you you, you don't prioritize yourself when you're you're in the position that you're, you're in and you know you've got an incredibly supportive family um yeah but for, for women out there who haven't it must yeah. be, it must just be oh it must be a minefield it really must it must be so difficult what other support did you receive not just you Mike as well um so we we were really lucky that we 
our, our team in our hospital where Gray was born, we had a bereavement nurse who um, we were then still in touch with, who was supporting us from there. We There were a few miscommunications when we were transferred back to a hospital in London and we weren't initially hooked up with the bereavement team, but I think most hospitals have a bereavement team, not every hospital, um, but bereavement midwives. Um, often I think they are quite overstretched um, because sadly it's not as rare as you'd like it to be that people are going through this I mean obviously like it no one was going through it um so we have had a bereavement midwifery team who who were great and really supportive especially around me having to have my placenta operation we were actually then also referred for therapy which I think it's unfortunately really really rare and I and I don't think is uh, an automatic thing by any means we saw a um, specialist bereavement therapist who I still see now um, and, and then outside of that there's a lot of charity stuff so there's obviously Tommy's um, have a support group online and midwives that you can call and loads and loads and loads of information on the website Tommy's is amazing and SANS as well um, we were given a SANS booklet when we left the hospital which linked us up there I think we were incredibly lucky in that we were definitely signposted to a lot of support that's available and I think unfortunately that isn't um, by any means a universal experience I've spoken to a lot of women who haven't been pointed in the direction of those and who and find themselves kind of you know on social media or somewhere looking for some support and if you know where to look and you do look there is stuff out there um certainly I found as um the mother or birthing person I was actually speaking to Mike about it recently and he said he felt like he didn't have such readily available access to support um and I think that Tommy's recently ran a really amazing campaign about kind of partner support because I think a lot of it does tend to be directed at the person who's given birth initially because there's, you know, we certainly have people saying, well, I mean, it's worse for you than it is for Mike. I'm thinking, what, why would it be worse for me? Um, and there's, you know, it's very channeled. I felt, I recognised that a lot of the support was channeled that supporting me and he was maybe less less able to find support um, and possibly had different reservations you know I I kind of got on Instagram and have linked up with so many women I, I think just as it's happened um who have lost babies um and that's not necessarily his he wouldn't necessarily take to Instagram to to do that so um I think he has has found it harder possibly to to find to find support that works for him because I think also different things work for work for different for different people and and everyone's experience is so unique that of course there are commonalities um but not yeah you, it's, you're never going to find someone who's had exactly the same experience as you obviously yeah. like with, like with anything and I think that possibly as the person who was pregnant with Gray and carried him, um, obviously mine and Mike's experiences of it were just very, just different because mm. that, yeah, very different. But there, but there is amazing support. There's another thinking of there's another charity called Saying Goodbye that's run by a woman called Zoe Clark Coates who has also yeah. written books 
and guides. I think she's a therapist or counsellor. Yeah, she's yeah. on Instagram. She's amazing. Um, and then there's loads of blogs and things. But I think it's it is to some degree a case of getting lucky and finding someone in a bereavement midwife or whatever it is who then directs you to the right place or yeah. or being lucky to come across things on Instagram things. So yeah, that and and from what I understand the bereavement care is not standardised across hospitals. I didn't realise that. Um, links to those charities that you mentioned there in our in our show notes. Um but for anyone to yeah. Oh I can send I've got a I'm sure there's lots of others that I can tell you about as well and other like Instagram accounts and things. Right, thank you. What I wanted to actually ask really quickly, um, Georgie, if you didn't mind, was I suppose how difficult was the decision? Was it a difficult decision or was it not to then, I suppose, think, right, well, let's have another baby? Because I'm sure that's quite a fear. I suppose that's nearly like quite an anxious sort of situation yeah. to be into. Yeah, really, really tough. So I, I found, I remember that I think when we drove back to London, well, just, I think it was two weeks after Grey had died. I remember saying to Mike, I really want to have another baby. And he was a bit like, whoa. Yeah. Um, and I think it, is, it seems like quite a common thing that women who lose babies that very quickly, you just want, I don't think it's even as, you're not even thinking that I want to replace that baby. It's just like, I, I want something. I, I, I want a baby to hold. I want it's hormonal and all those other things. Um, but I was told I really couldn't because of having had a C-section. And I think particularly because of the placental abruption, I didn't, I, I was very nervous of doing anything that deviated from the advice that we'd been given by kind of medical teams who delivered Gray and all of those things. So it was a, definitely, there were loads of things to consider. We, we had to wait for the results of the genetic testing to come back, which showed that it was just a spontaneous thing that had happened either of us were carriers um which was a weird thing because obviously that was good on the one hand but then you know it's a weird thing to feel happy about because it still was still happened to still happened to him but it was obviously you know um, we were lucky that that wasn't gonna be a con you know it was always gonna be a continuing concern yeah exactly yeah. Um, going into another pregnancy and then um <clears throat> The pregnancy itself was horrible, really horrible. I think I didn't really appreciate until after Bear was born quite how horrible it was. And I um, was really lucky. Because you felt so anxious. You made so anxious, yeah. so anxious. And so I just couldn't trust in it, trust in my body. Mm. Um, I think we found out, I remember after Grey died thinking, because well, I didn't know with Finn or Bear, whether they were boys or girls. And I remember thinking after Grey died, I wish I had known that he was a boy because if I had known he was a boy, then maybe kind of, I would have felt like I had more time with him. And so with Bear, we found out that he was a boy. Um, partly also, I think, because I just couldn't deal with any surprises. I didn't. And I, and I also didn't want to have any conversations with anyone when they were saying, oh, I wonder if it's a boy or a girl. And I was thinking... I just wonder if they'll live beyond three weeks old. Um, and so we found out it was a boy. And then I remember thinking, but I, but I still don't know. I still don't know him. It's still it, like I love him and want to. But it was. I think I found it. I found it much more difficult to 
bond create a bond with him mm. while I was pregnant because I didn't I think something in my head thought like if I just don't get attached to him then if he dies too then that will be much easier survival Which, mode yeah, yeah. Exactly. and also it's not going to work that's not going to work um so and I was being really closely monitored and I think I was really scared of there were so many kind of different things to be scared of because I was scared of same diagnosis um but then was also scared of the placental abruption we didn't know what had caused that and if you've had one percent abruption you are then at higher risk of having another one and was then thinking what if that happens again and what is that then selfish to try and have another baby if I'm gonna put them you know all these things that just swirled around in my head all the time um and I think I then thought when he was born kind of if he's okay then everything will be fine but I was still scared I think I, I guess the, the trauma of Ray Ray's diagnosis and Ray's death and living without him is not gonna just be able to be switched off um switch off kind of the, the anxieties about that along alongside so yeah. I hear that but I thought a lot of patients who've experienced baby loss and then fall pregnant again that anxiety is a long nine months it's a really long really really long I remember sometimes sitting on the sofa just thinking you know because a lot of there's so many brilliant resources people giving great advice about kind of you know just take it day by day or hour by hour or minute by minute and I just remember sometimes sitting on the sofa being like second by second okay I'm okay okay I can feel him kicking so hopefully he's okay okay and kind of each scan getting through it I, I almost would arrive at scans thinking like if you just find something then I'll know what I'm dealing with which sounds so weird it was almost like a what like I just I just you do to find out what's wrong and then tell me and then I can um which you know all these weird games that your brain plays with mm. you and I was um pregnant through covid we were really lucky that actually at my hospital mike was allowed to come to uh come to scans which i know was so lucky so many people didn't have that but i had so many scans that he couldn't necessarily always come to all of them so sometimes um i was there on my own but actually i i found that once i was in the scan they were almost some of the it was almost the times between scans or when I was at home and no one was checking me that I felt more fearful because I think I, did, I didn't trust myself. I didn't trust myself to have the responsibility to be, you know, knowing when I should go and get something checked or knowing. And I had a, had a couple of prematurity scares. And I just, I just felt so out of control, the whole thing. I mean, you are Such out of control a weird anyway. Like yeah. that's just, I think that's going to resonate with so many people because that is the fear that people are living in on a nearly a second by second, minute by minute sort of yeah. um, way. And like that's a long, long pregnancy and it's a huge mental yeah. endurance and test. Yeah. And I remember, I can't, not actually many people knew that I was pregnant because this was in the pandemic. And so we were at home and we just made the decision not to tell anyone that we didn't see because it was so difficult. I felt so guilty every time someone, you know, people I bumped into or whatever who were like oh my god you're pregnant that's so exciting and I just remember thinking I wish that I could feel mm. as excited as you are and I I know that this you know <laughs> I knew it was exciting and I was excited about what 
could happen if it all was okay. But in that moment, the pregnancy itself didn't feel exciting at all. And it was then, then I felt guilty about not feeling excited because I also knew how lucky I was to be able to be pregnant um, with another baby. And so all these things were rattling around. And, oh, yeah, it's so complicated, isn't it? So complicated. So complicated and, and so confusing. Do you think writing your book has, um, were you writing it whilst you were pregnant? I've, I've lost track of time no, a bit. No, you, no. You, you'd written it before you were pregnant, hadn't I you? wrote it before I got pregnant. So I actually yeah. wrote it straight after um, Grey died. I started writing. I wanted, I was on maternity leave and I've always wanted to write a novel. Mm. And so I thought, well, he's given me this time and I'm going to take the time and I'm going to use it to do something that I've always really wanted to do, which is write a novel. And I sat down and started writing. I'd started something years ago everything I wrote I was trying to write in like maybe this person could be a NICU nurse or maybe this person's baby could have died or maybe this maybe the you know the grandmother's baby it was constantly trying to work in ways that I think I could write about things that I needed to write about and then I thought I just I think I need to write about Grey and write about what happened and it felt like my way of making sense of it I think I I read something recently about someone saying that when she she writes about her life and when she writes about it, it's like experiencing it again. And that def it definitely felt like I did that. Like I, I remembered everything in such detail, which I think sometimes going through something traumatic can have that effect of I had this kind of it was like a film playing in my head of days and times and I remember writing it down and at times try, kind of not being able to write as quickly as I was thinking because I was thinking I've got to get this all down on paper because then I'm what if I forget and it was you know it was three weeks and I need to remember every second because what if I don't and obviously there is stuff that I've forgotten and things that but it it definitely felt like a huge part of not making sense of it because you can't make sense of it but definitely a hugely cathartic process in many ways and I think uh, I wrote it because I kind of couldn't not write it mm -hmm. um and wrote it all down quite quickly and and initially for us for you know for, for Finn one day or any other siblings that we didn't know whether we'd have and for me to have and for Mike to have and for our families and I think that's one of the things that has been amazing is family and friends being able to know know Gray a little bit more and know what what his life was and actually that it was really joyful as well as you know him dying being I hope the most horrendous thing I will ever have to mm -hmm. experience and you know it's the the mark that it's left on us and on our lives is obviously completely huge I was saying to my therapist the other day that I felt sometimes like like I was like a glass of water and then Gray's death was like a dye that you poured in and just no part of the water could escape it forever mm -hmm. and and um but I but I did it's not all bad and sad the impact that it's had although there is that too there's been a lot of you know it's given me a lot of perspective I think but I don't always remember and um just taught me a lot about love 
and kind of reshaped I think my view of love and taught me a lot about being a parent and accepting like earlier on <laughs> Finn and I were listening to that song time after time and Finny said mommy would you catch me if I fail it's <laughs> like yeah you're listening to the words of the song he was like yeah time after time they said yeah and then I was thinking but then the fact of being a parent is accepting that you can't always can you there's going to come a time when you you can't save them from something that happens to them and I think obviously I learned that in a fairly sort of smack in the face way mm. but um and it's still hard to accept I can't you know hard to accept that I, I can't protect Finn and Bear from everything bad that ever happens to them. Mm. Um, well, you write it in such it's you, the way you speak, the way you write. It's so articulate, and 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 the, the book is the book is beautiful. I, I have to be honest. I sobbed my heart out <laughs> about reading it. I texted you and said, "Nice." Yeah, so, oh, I know. I'm sorry. Oh, I'm no, sorry for the tears. Sorry. It's such a powerful book, and I, you know, I think I think it's something that everyone should read because um, it certainly helps you understand, or not understand, appreciate, you know, the grieving process. But as you say, it's it is full of love as well. Um, yeah. And it is, you know, there's little funny parts in it as well. It's it's an incredible book, Georgie. I'm I'm so you. you know, I'm in awe of you writing it. And it must have been, you know, quite quite the project. It really, it really must have been. But how are you all how are you all doing now? Because obviously Bear is now, I should know this. Bear is nearly one. Bear is nearly one. Finn, Finn is nearly four. They I have the same they have the, they have the same birthday. So wow. um <laughs> yeah, delivered. <laughs> Delivered by the same surgeon oh, on the same wow. day, three years apart. Yeah, just amazing. Um, yeah, he's nearly one. Finn's nearly four, and yeah, we're really, we're really good. It's it's like strange because I think we're really happy and really, which is so lucky. But there is, it's not a shadow because it's not always bad, but there's a weight I guess that you carry always and I wonder whether your um parents I don't know how they feel about that as they I'm sure it's the same you know I just think you don't sometimes you feel like you want to put it down for a moment and step away but then you can't because that would mean putting them down and putting your love for them down and you can't you don't want to do that so it's the sadness and difficultness is tied up in that and I think there there are moments that where, where it's like acute pain or, you know, there's really difficult conversations you have as, as we came out of lockdown. And had quite a long time, obviously, in lockdown and not encountering people having those conversations. And then you suddenly realise when you've got young kids and you go to birthday parties or meet up with nursery things and just so many of the conversations, you think like, oh, I've got to take a deep breath because someone's going to say like, oh, two boys, like, oh, no. you know. And you think, no, there's three. No, there's yeah. three. There's, there's another one. And like, you know, people saying, just saying, because, you know, because of the language we use, is like referring to Bear as number two. And I think, no, mm -hmm. he's not. He's number three. And mm -hmm. you can't in every situation say, 
well, actually, <laughs> he's not, and I'm going to shatter, you know, this nice Saturday afternoon at this, like, little birthday party we're at by saying, but although I've had a few funny conversations with the book where people have said, like, oh, my God, you've written a book, what it's about, what's it about? And you then think, oh, your excitement is going <laughs> to <laughs> But I think what you're talking about there is something that, yeah, I can see and relate to and even that fact of oh well no actually like I would have heard my parents correct well no actually we have the, uh, that this is one of six kids not one yeah. of five you know yeah. what I mean because yeah. it's nearly it's so that you're not a raison or not deleting no, that presence exactly. and part of your family exactly but it I always think you get used to living with like anything like any death and grief of any member of your family you get used to it but I would still see like if, if like my mom my dad passed away 11 years ago to cancer so he's not here now but I think burying one of your children is probably one of the most difficult things that you will ever do because you don't assume to do that no. you assume your children will bury you yeah but I would say mom you know even if she meets someone who's in a similar experience you know maybe in a younger generation but going through something you will see her really and tear up to that because it's so yeah. vivid that those yeah. memories come back that that, yeah. that reality of living through it you don't ever forget that no no but there's something, I don't mean that there's something quite nice about being able to relate to someone who's been in that situation because not everybody can. It's a, it's a unique sort of situation. Everyone can empathize. But I see there's a strength in that community when someone yeah. gets it and gets the situation. Yeah. And, and you were talking about neonatal. And like I went, I think, twice up to the hospital. And I, I remember those visits. And it's the machines, it's the nurses who yeah. are so good. They were taking me offside. As a ch- I can envisage it as an adult looking back now. They were taking me offside because the doctor or someone to talk to my parents about serious yeah. stuff so they were entertaining me yeah and it's mad like it's, yeah. it's mad yeah but it's so it's so true what you say I mean I think I have certainly found that I've connected with people in a wider sense who've, who've lost people that they love you know not just children but parents or siblings or whatever and although they're very different experiences there are kind of kernels of similarity and of understanding um and there is, there is then definitely when someone has experienced a similar loss of a child, there is some kind of connection there, definitely. My sister said at the weekend that she was at a wedding and um, met a mom of someone. So a, a grand, she'd lost her granddaughter. And Lou said they were talking at this wedding and they were both just standing there hugging and crying. And she was thinking, like, anyone looking must just be thinking, what is going on over there? But it was that kind of, yeah, and, and, and she, and she actually said it was, she said it was so nice for me to talk to somebody who just had, had been through something so similar and just really understood how I felt and how much that had impacted me and how much that was going to go on impacting me. And I think that's because I, I think there is, and I'm sure not knowingly, but sometimes possibly, I know with, with all kinds of grief, like society almost puts like a stop on it and kind of, you know, oh, it's been a year, like you probably yeah, kind that's of over. Should, should, be, should be better now. <laughs> like that's all, now we can just kind of, and I think I, you know, obviously my experience is losing grey and then having bear, there's definitely, I sometimes have a sense of like, Oh, and Bear's here and like that's great and it's like yeah that is great but for Grey and for Bear like that's not great because he replaces Grey and he is so much more than like the son that came after Grey who died you know let's give them both their own space and yes on the one hand like how lucky and amazing to have him after Grey died but also it, it 
doesn't it doesn't erase it it doesn't take away the pain it doesn't make it better um and and time you know I definitely feel lots of the pain is less acute than it was but then it can come back in these raw sharp moments and then some things now like in some ways I sometimes miss the simplicity I guess of like the early days just after Ray Diamond probably I was walking around in a bit of a state of numb shock but he was so fresh to me and the kind of I don't know it just all everything about him felt so clear and I could remember what he smelled like and all of those things and in some ways time passing feels hard because I feel I was talking to a friend about it recently I I feel further away from him and when I get caught up in days you know wonderful days with Finn and Bear and I'm super busy and sometimes like I'm pushing them both both on the swing and I don't think instantly oh my god there's someone missing in the middle and then I think and then I think oh my god I feel so bad that I just was happily pushing two boys on the swing and I didn't instantly think about my third boy and so it's I think it's so complicated and continues to be complicated doesn't it which which is you know that's not unique to to losing a child I think that's losing anyone you love as you say isn't it it's you you learn you learn how to accommodate that within your life without ever getting to a point where you're going to be over it or totally it's not going to feel really painful sometimes but I think sometimes in really unexpected times yeah it could be seeing something or something just reminds you and it just It's, it's, it floods back but I think the fact that you know that and you're not expecting to get to a stage where you're totally fine with this is yeah. a really good and human thing yeah and that yeah. makes it easier to make it part of your life because it's okay to have those days when it comes flooding back or yeah. those moments and I think it's there's something nice about that too because that's how they're still part of the family totally <laughs> totally that's it isn't it like sometimes just because the sadness is so bound up in the love and the grief it, that you don't want yeah sometimes it's just cathartic bittersweet yeah Yeah. exactly it's so complicated to put into words isn't it but it is really important oh I think this here story will resonate with so many people whether you've experienced it or not I think that it's something that there'll be people who will have experienced it and this is going to be Mm. so vivid um in a really comforting probably bittersweet way yeah but there'll be other people who will get an insight into maybe things they've never even considered about about this journey so I think it'll be really really valuable to our listeners and I think this has been fantastic and we really appreciate you coming and sharing this because it's not easy. Um, It's so nice. It's so nice though as well. It's really nice to talk about him. It's really nice and really special to have time to talk about. Yeah. Yeah. For him. Yeah. And to remember some stuff that I like those early days that I haven't really thought about for a while because I often think about the later days and think about the aftermath and yeah, don't think about in a way like the, first 24 hours when we thought that all the shock was just this early baby and yeah. then all the stuff that came after but thank you so much so thank you for thank okay. you for having me to talk about him thank, thank you so much I'm going we will obviously I mean I know no one can see this but I'm just holding I'm <laughs> holding up your amazing book because I love it and um we will put all links to it thank um, you. it's a must read I think um, and I can't thank you enough for writing it and thank you for letting me be part of your you know no, your journey thank you. as well thank you so, you you oh. were just as you know you 
you as I say in the book you put me back together not just in my body but in my in my head as well yeah that definitely probably quite a lot <laughs> <laughs> so thank you you took on more than you bargained for it wasn't just diastasis it was well, this, is, this is the amazingness of our job we we get to meet incredible people like yourselves and it's it's a huge privilege so so thank you for being you and um I'm really thank looking forward to more and more people reading your book and and you know uh learning and and finding out about grey so thank you George. thank you thank you so much thank you for having me thank you thank you so much for joining us on this episode we really hope you enjoyed it we always love to hear your feedback and any questions you might have so please do contact us via instagram at your cervix underscore the podcast or twitter at your cervix underscore pm don't forget to check out our wonderful sponsor, Pelvic Relief. You can find them at www.pelvicrelief.co.uk. Gronya and I really look forward to catching up with you next week.